Hello, Tomas, host and editor of the Science Brisbane podcast. So if you were the absolute monarch of the earth, right? And you yeah. had to solve climate change. Yeah. One action, one thing. What would that be? You have 15 seconds to answer. Ooh, I'd probably quit. Like, that, sounds, <laughs> that sounds like a hard thing to do. That That's does bad. not sound like it. Yeah, Wonderful. <laughs> Thank you. The science Hello, welcome. You're listening to the Science Basement Podcast, a podcast for people who love all things science. I'm your host, Giuliano. And I'm your co-host, Tomas. And today we're talking about carbon dioxide absorbing technologies. Clear, right? No, I know, at least it isn't clear for me. It is not clear for me, but bear with us. Hopefully by the end of the episode, it will make some sense. And to tell us all about it, we have Todd Elliott, PhD student at CatLab, University of Helsinki, under the supervision of Professor Timo Repo. Hello, Todd. How are you? Hello, I'm very well. Thank you very much, Juliana. Thank you for accepting our invitation. Uh, we are, I mean, I don't know about you, Thomas. I'm very excited about um, this episode because from what I understood, your PhD work, not only being extremely interesting, but I mean, we say that to basically every interviewee, but it, it, it sounds to me like it, it, it's a very important thing to work on. So would you mind? It will also, it will also make my life as a global monarch a lot easier you know with the I know. small <laughs> task that he gave me exactly <laughs> exactly there you go so you know tomas take notes you might want to hire him once you know you, when you rule the world so todd do you mind us you know summarizing to us or for us what your phd is about uh yes uh so basically i'm working on a class of chemicals called super bases and they absorb carbon dioxide, or some of them absorb carbon dioxide uh, directly from the air above them. So I'm working on finding out the best types of those chemicals that absorb the carbon dioxide so that we can then capture it and then reversibly release it. And then we can do the same thing again and again with the same chemicals and then basically capture the carbon dioxide and then take it to wherever we need it to to be and then either release it or then keep it for for long-term storage and if i may ask what is a super base exactly uh, i'm not from chemistry at all so that's uh it'd be it'd be helpful for me at least to to go further and get the basics yeah no absolutely if you go back to your uh chemistry days at school possibly you'll hopefully remember acids and bases and so if we think of uh acids as uh if you remember possibly as hydrogen ions so basically, if we think of uh, the element hydrogen, so the element hydrogen comprises of a central proton, which is positively charged, and then around this proton circles an electron, which is negatively charged. And when we have something that's acidic, that has hydrogen in it, basically this hydrogen, when it then gets dissolved in water, this hydrogen goes off and makes its merry way as an acid and starts causing all sorts of havoc. So in this sense, effectively, uh, the hydrogen ion, which has then lost its electron by being dissolved, it becomes a 
proton then. And effectively, this proton then goes off and acts as the acid. And so we think of acids then as then proton donors. So they donate this proton, this proton goes off, and the stronger an acid is, the more of this proton will come out and then start dissolving and being very corrosive to whatever the acid comes into contact with. And so that's an acid. And so a base is a proton acceptor. So effectively, we think of bases, they're very good at accepting these protons, these hydrogen ions that are on the loose around the place. And so they're very good at accepting them. In fact, the very strong corrosive bases, for example, caustic soda, that will then also be very corrosive. They are then so good at accepting protons, they'll actually go out of their way and start nicking them from other things. And that's how then they're very corrosive. And so if we think of a super base then, which is what I'm working with, they're really good at accepting protons. If there's a proton going, that's for them. Um, so they they love themselves a proton. They're hungry for protons. They love the, the positive side of life, as it were. So that's what a super base is. Okay, just uh, I'm, I'm trying to allow me to repeat what I just heard and tell me if I got it right. Okay. So we have acids and bases, which are yeah. kind of, they, they do opposite things compared to each other, right? So an acid, it's a molecule that is really good at giving protons away. Yeah. Is it correct? Whereas bases are compounds are really good at grabbing protons from yes. other molecules. I, I would understand, I would guess, right? And then you're working with compounds that are extremely good at grabbing protons. So super bases. Yes. Okay, now I see. And what's so special about the super base that you are using? Okay, so our super bases uh, basically include uh, nitrogen. Uh, nitrogen then plays the part of the proton uh, acceptor. And as such, is then looking around for protons and so in our superbases uh the way the molecule is structured really helps put this nitrogen then in a position where it's really up for accepting these protons and so when it comes to cast of carbon dioxide so carbon dioxide has a polarity amongst it if we think of the oxygens they have a certain pull if you think of a magnet so effectively, what they're doing is pulling the electrons that carbon has to the side. And this means carbon is no longer got its electrons going around the nucleus. They're pulled to the side, like opening the curtains to the stage. And their center stage then is the nucleus, where we have the protons. This nitrogen in the superbase really wants protons. Here they are, center stage for it. And there they go. And uh, it grabs the carbon dioxide then by the carbon and holds it there. And then it means that we can then hold the carbon dioxide and we can release the carbon dioxide again by either heating it up to anywhere between 60 and 90 degrees, depending on the super base. And then it will release the carbon dioxide again, or we can just bubble nitrogen gas through it and it will release the carbon dioxide again. So now we can capture carbon dioxide and then reversibly release it and capture again and release it to get carbon dioxide anywhere that we might want it or for long-term storage as well. Thank you so much for making my rain much easier. Um, but okay, great. We've captured it. Congrats us. What happens with the carbon? So you, as I understand, it's just stored in this, um, in this solution 
but what what do you do afterwards with it? Where where does it go? So carbon dioxide. Well, if we um if we think about it this way, we've been we've been painfully aware of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere because of burning fossil fuels and things for a very long time. We've been ridiculously aware, considering how little we have done as a species, considering how much we've known for how long. We, we knew that we were doing this, I think, around the same time that we must have been thinking about aliens or something. Yeah, so we've, we've been painfully aware of, of how much carbon dioxide we produce for a while. And so scientists have been working for a while on being able to use carbon dioxide as a thing. So you're basically trying, we're, we're, the idea would be to actually recycle CO2. So to get it from where it's basically being released as a waste and then use it in another way, basically to not just let it stay there in the air as a, you know, and cause greenhouse effects and all the things we know. Yes. So there are there are three main uh, industries that release carbon dioxide into the atmosphere as far as the, the global ones are concerned. So that's the petrochemical industry for, for fuels and burning fossil fuels. There's the iron and steel industry. So we use carbon dioxide in the extraction of iron as well as in the forming of steel and other products that use iron. So a lot of different things there. And then also in concrete and cement manufacture. So just building a building is huge. I mean, you, it's just every building site is just carbon dioxide extravaganza because of the steel beams that go inside of the concrete that are being placed by the digger that burns fossil fuels. It's just like, ah, just all the CO2 in the world, let's go. Um, which is why green building, I can imagine, is is very important. But yeah, we release a lot of CO2 from these three main industries. And so it's really good that if we can put this sort of technology on their, on their exhaust effectively, rather than it going straight into the air, if we can just pipe that through this gas or through this solution, we'll be able to then remove the CO2, the carbon dioxide, so that it is then not being going into the atmosphere. But yeah, those are the three main industries. And so the idea with this is that we can take the CO2, take it somewhere, and then either store it or use it. So we can use it in a few different ways. We can use it directly incorporated into a lot of pharmaceuticals. So we'll use it in the pharmaceuticals industry. Then there's also a way that we can turn it back into methanol. So it means straight away we've turned the carbon dioxide into something that we can then use. And the problem we've had basically is that now we've gotten to a point where we can use the carbon dioxide. Where is it? Uh, it's all up in the atmosphere. Oh, great. Um, so do we have like a net for carbon dioxide? No, it's really small and mostly unreactive. Oh, great. So we needed to, we, we, the IPCC recent reports, 2018 of keeping carbon dioxide down low as a major influencer for the 1.5 degrees carbon dioxide increase. Um, one of the main points they said is that carbon negative technologies will probably be needed in the balance of ways that we stop the rise. So I, I wouldn't say that I have all the answers for reversing climate change. I, I would not claim in the slightest to be the only person who will be, you know, I solved all of climate change. 
definitely not. But I'm I am hoping that our technology will be a part of what will hopefully be a plethora of different areas all coming together with a contribution that will bring down the temperature increase so that we can keep that 1.5% increase. I mean, I, I think it's good that everyone wants to be the one, but to be honest, if we've got that many people trying, then it's fantastic because then we can use all of these efforts put together to hopefully collectively do that. And I think that's one of the great things about science is that you know, all of us are collectively trying to do this. Science is a collaborative enterprise, but we all share this knowledge. So, yeah, I, uh, sorry, Your Highness, I don't think I'll solve it all on my own, but I, I definitely think I'll be, I'll be adding a, a, a hefty chunk of help anyway. So, Tomas, you'll have to look for other people for your world-solving team. Still, I think that you're a fine addition. I, I might add you to the climate change ministry of, of the kingdom, you know. Okay, thank you very um, much. And while, while we're at it, so it is true that we're still producing a hell of a ton of carbon dioxide uh, with your technologies and like different car carbon capturing technologies. Where do you think would be the best places to target that sort of thing? So like where... Where would you be installing these technologies in order to capture the most amount of carbon and try to be as efficient as possible in solving this biggest problem? I think hitting those three main industries, if we can get this on their exhausts, it's going to be much better. I think petrochemical fossil fuel industry will be last because they have the most impurities to deal with. So making sure that our, ours is selective and also doesn't degrade with all those impurities. I think the concrete and cement one will be the easiest to do. And also iron and steel is not too bad. There's not so much impurities there in the gases that come out that we would need to be too selective for it. Uh, but then also just in areas where we can readily use the CO2 for something else. So if you already have a system somewhere where you need CO2, if you're just happy to pump in the air from outside the damn factory into wherever you are, so for example, for carbonated drinks, or if you are running a greenhouse, so large industrial greenhouses, we are using more of them now these days, and we're trying to cut down on the amount of space they use, but still the amount of things that we can grow in there, in which case we're still going to need that much carbon dioxide for them. And so having this system basically between the inside and outside world you can on one side open it up run it through the atmosphere get as much carbon dioxide as you can put it back on the inside of the greenhouse open it back up release all that carbon dioxide for all the plants and then go back again and just reversibly pump carbon dioxide from outside inside and use it stuff like that i i don't know about sending it into space i mean wait is is that an option i mean in in space you need to be able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere because in the iss people are just floating about they don't have the oxygen tanks so the atmosphere inside has to be circulated and also keep carbon dioxide at a low enough of concentration course. so that they can all work normally yeah that makes and sense so yeah. you do need something that will be reversible that you can actually continue to use that is easy to use so heating to 60 90 degrees isn't too difficult to do necessarily and we're working on other ways of triggering the reverse oxide out so i mean anywhere that you've got carbon dioxide that you don't want carbon dioxide and the carbon dioxide is a gas 
these uh, these super bases are pretty good. They're pretty useful. Currently, there's these chemicals. They work really well at this thing. Yay! Let's do a lot of research on it. So currently doing a lot of research on which is the best structure, which one is helping it best to work the way it does, what's the best solvent to do it at, what temperature does it reverse at, what structural differences can we do to help with this. So we've got a lot to work out and also the form and how it reacts with the carbon dioxide. So there's lots of different things to kind of work out which are the best versions of. And then once we've got the best version of, then we can know what we've got as a technology to then implement whether or not we then try to keep it selective and also stationary so that we can have it kind of set onto like a solid or a membrane so that it's easily separatable from other things and then you can just brush glass or liquid past it and then afterwards you just release the carbon dioxide somewhere separately or whether or not we have it um just as some sort of flow system where it's just continually circulating and then at one end you occasionally get the gas being released or whatever it is so i mean i'm not an engineer i i'm not going to get all i'm not going to do all of it i'm going to do my bits i'm going to do the bit that i can do the best to the my ability of and then i'm going to hand it to someone who is hopefully at least as intelligent as me ideally more um because we're all we're all not perfect but i just hope they're hopefully trying as much as i've been trying and then we keep trying together and then you know like i said it's definitely not gonna be me even within my field even within this technology it's not just gonna be me ever okay so so far we got tell me if i got everything right right so far what i understood is that you guys are working on this compound a specific type of super bases, nitrogen based, really good grabbing CO2 from a solution or from the air. And uh, the whole point of this, as far as understood, is that you can use it to take CO2 out of other stuff. So basically, I'm thinking of fumes of factories and, you know, waste mixtures of stuff. So you can use these compounds to grab CO2 so that it doesn't go in the air and then you can keep it and then you can release it somewhere else and you can use it for things where CO2 is actually useful. And you mentioned greenhouses, soda factories and uh, pharmaceutical companies and stuff like that. This sounds awesome. Is it, did I get it right? Is it as awesome as it sounds like? I mean, that's the eventual plan. Yeah, the moment we're still, basically we've got... So I've been testing, uh, how many have been testing recently? I started off at eight different ones, three of which are commercially available. The other four had to be specifically synthesized. So not all of these are regular super bases. And then, so we're kind of expanding the actual class of chemicals as well, because they've not been looked at so much in the past. So new ones are being synthesized at the moment as well. So as they're being synthesized and found, um, we are then also checking at the same time, okay, so is this one also good at grabbing CO2? So as they're being, you know, we're, we're kind of there right next to them. So this is a collaborative enterprise as well with another group that works on the floor uh, below me, actually. So, in fact, it's a fantastic story. Effectively, they were making these super bases. And what happened was that they realized that they had to be very careful about sealing the containers after they'd synthesized them because they realized if they left them unsealed for too long, 
they would take they would react with carbon dioxide in the air and form this carbamate product which is not what they wanted because then that's not a pure synthesis and it lowers their yield for for using it in whatever it was needed for so they they were complaining that it kept reacting with the carbon dioxide in the air and what i was doing research on that sounded like not a complaint that sounded very much exactly what i was looking for because the super bases they were using were part of what i did as part of my mind anyway and so finding out about ones that grabbed carbon dioxide i was like well i mean that sounds exactly like the sort of research i would be yeah, collaboration you know, you, but you, you you basically you solved their problem and yours yeah. so now because i'm a biologist right and tomas also is he's a biologist is fine if i if i don't remember wrong um i'm quite familiar with how a biology lab day looks like mm. uh, but i'm not I, i've never been into a chemistry lab and i don't even know oh, what you guys do because i don't think you, you i mean do you spend your day mixing liquids in, in in glass cylinders or maybe that's an obsolete idea so how do, how does your average lab working day look like okay so i'll 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 get in i'll go to the office i'll dump all my stuff i'll then grab my lab book check emails quickly in case i need to go and do a thing or there's a meeting that i've forgotten about during that day check that i don't have anything actual to do and then i'll go to the lab with my uh lab book and then i will start the day's experiments so i'll i've got a fume hood which is where I carry out my experiments so that if anything's producing any gases or anything like that, they go straight up this exhaust area. So in there is different glassware and different equipment that I then use to conduct different experiments. Uh, I do indeed mix liquids together and dissolve solids into liquids and do all sorts of different things. Lots of fun. With these chemicals at the moment, effectively what I do is I have the super base i dissolve it into my solvent uh, uh, if it's a solid if it's a liquid i'll just mix them together um using a magnetic stirrer so i don't know if you use those in your lab it's effective oh yes and i still love them After i love the magnetic five stirrer. years in the I lab swear. i still love the magnetic stirrer oh i okay. love them idea and i i think this is a brilliant idea and i don't know why i'm basically getting around to the idea of, of doing this. I don't know why I don't buy one of those things for home, buy a big magnet, and then I can just make a soup easily. Like I can just put the temperature on from my own plate at home, put the magnet in the bottom. They're, 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 they, don't, they don't get burnt by acid, okay? They're fine for my food. So I was just thinking I should get a magnetic stirring hot plate for home, and then I can just cook food and it will stir the food for me. That's I good. have to say, I've thought one. of that. No, no, no. I thought of that the first time I saw them. I thought, oh, I want those in my kitchen. But just for the audience to you know, to understand what we're talking about. The magnetic stirrer is basically this hot plate. It can be a hot plate. Sometimes they're magnetic and hot plates. Sometimes they don't have the temperature feature. But anyway, yeah. imagine this metal plate uh, that has a, um, a, mag a magnet inside that can you know rotate. So basically by putting another magnet in a beaker with a solution and putting everything on the magnetic stirrer, uh, basically you get the small magnet in the solution to, to start rotating and twist and basically you're mixing constantly your solution. It, it sounds kind of, it's kind of like a five-year-old magic 
uh, tray. Yes, exactly. Where you have a magnet underneath the table and you move a coin. Exactly. It's like that, but really, really fast with a with a stick so that mm. you mix stuff. It yeah. is it is incredibly simple and yet really, really useful. Yeah. That's the best way to describe it. Thank you, Tomas. That was absolutely excellent. Yes. It's, and I do, I do think of that, and I still don't know why I haven't done it yet. Yeah, me neither. But anyway. I, th I think it's because uh, it's because I'm also a chemistry teacher, as well as PhD chemistry. Clearly, I like chemistry. But, I mean, if I get that, I might as well give up having actual dishware and just buy massive beakers and just turn my kitchen into a, into a lab. Just cook cooking food it's just, oh, what was this oh, it's just a uh, it's uh it's my conical flask of uh what was this oh yeah oh, it's tomato this, soup this yeah anyway so i thought i wasn't so far and you know i wasn't that far in imagining you guys just mixing liquids into i do i do mix liquids this. i cannot okay. deny it the thing is though i mix them in in not in the way that you imagine because yeah, i can't not. just i can't just flip flip uh drippity yeah. drop start Big pouring it. stuff around willy-nilly um the, like everything has to be calculated how much i use so it's a specific amount at a specific concentration with the everything has to be then logged in my that's why i always that's why i remember pick up my lab book because i go in there i open it up and i go what am i going to write into this today i bet you it's numbers i bet you it's a lot of numbers and some units and then a few brief sentences and an occasional swear word at why something didn't work but then I'll rub that out because technically I think it's some sort of official document need. And then I, I then do the experiment, which for me is I've got this tube, which come out at the end comes carbon dioxide. I basically point it at my liquid while it's being stirred. Carbon dioxide gets all up into the air around it. And, and you make my... bubbles. And you make no, bubbles. No, I don't. Actually, you don't? I, I don't make bubbles because mine is so good I can't bubble it. All of the literature currently bubbles theirs to help with mass transfer, but mine, it, it reacts with it so much that it, some of them, it just completely silic. So sometimes when it reacts with the carbon dioxide, it's just a liquid. Sometimes it forms a precipitate, like a solid kind of sludge. And some of them react so well, the whole thing just turns into a solid block of what's reacted with carbon dioxide. And so I can't bubble it because it will just plug up the end of the tube that's that's blowing the carbon dioxide in. So for all of them now, I just have it above the liquid and then I just stir it fast enough that there's a slight vortex and the surface is really disturbed. And then this allows for the mass transfer at the surface, which is not very efficient. For those of you who are familiar with this sort of thing, I know it's not very efficient. It's designed to be that way because I found some awesome stuff. Sorry, it's just some of it's really cool. Like. So I love some of it. Some of it doesn't work and I know it's not going to work, but I love it anyway. I just, some of it is really cool. I really like my research. I like finding out the cool stuff and I like it when it suddenly does something I didn't expect it to do. And then you think that's really cool. And you write down all the things you see and then you go to pick it up and you weren't heating it. And then it's warm as well. And you're like, oh, it's exothermic. Um, I, I'm, yeah. I, that's amazing. I'm, like, I do have, I do wonder, like, Every scientist has kind of their own story of how they ended up doing what they do. What led you down this road? Like, why why are you doing this specific research? Like, what led you down this road, essentially? So for this specific research, I think it's because when I, when I got into chemistry, a bit of a hippie, 
but rather than sitting around in a circle going um or whatever it was um and complaining about you know power stations i thought i'm gonna go and study chemistry and so green chemistry has always been my thing and so when i did my master's thesis i went to the professor who taught the green chemistry course and basically said i would like to do uh, my master's thesis with you please because I want to do something with green chemistry and you are the green chemistry professor. Um, so I went and went there and that's how I then ended up doing my thesis on, he basically just said, okay, there's uh, hydrogen, carbon dioxide or lignin and cellulose and things. Um, and I went for carbon dioxide because I knew carbon dioxide was a definite thing. Whereas lignin and cellulose, I know there's lots to do with trees and wood fibers, and, and I know there would be plenty of things for that in Finland, but it's just not. So I did my master's thesis in capturing or like using carbon dioxide as a trigger in these ionic liquids. And so then my professor then knew that that's what I wanted to then be interested in as PhD. And then we got a grant for that project on using super bases to capture CO2. And as I was the person with the highest amount of interest, then I got the opportunity to then do the research I'm doing now. So that's good because I am, I feel, even though sometimes I might not feel like I, I'm the smartest human being in the world. And I'm sure lots of researchers have moments where they're just sort of like, I'm such an idiot. Ah, oh, how did I miss that? No oh, idea what you're no. talking about. Speak for yourself. <laughs> no, I'm joking. That's my entire life. Yeah, we've all we've all made really silly mistakes, but I still really enjoy chemistry, and I really enjoyed this time. Excellent. Thank you so much for sharing your huge passion. And I mean, also, you also managed to get us kind of really, really hope that your technology eventually, you know, gets out there. We really, really need that, especially for Tomas's reign. I mean, he will need you in his kingdom, world kingdom, and, and administration in general of the world. Um, Thank you, Todd, for making my life and my future. Very welcome. And so this brings us almost to the end of the episode. I think I mentioned this, Todd, at the end of each episode. We have a scientific fun fact, related or not related to the topic of the episode. So there you go. Thomas, the stage is yours. What's your fun fact for today? So I will present my fun fact as a, as a kind of riddle. So if I tell you mummies, Ireland, and well-done nails, what pops into your mind? Mummies as in bandaged corpses, not as in mothers. As in very well-preserved corpses, yes. Ireland and nail and, and, and what? what and was very well-done nails. Mummies, Ireland? Yeah, no... Mummy's Island and very and well nails done that, nails. as in fingernails. No, no, I got that. No, I got. I still that. Um, it still makes um, no sense. Some to bizarre me. Halloween drag. So, uh, no. Oh, I know, I, I know, I know. A really bad Friday night in a in a, in, a, in a pub in Dublin. That's what I can think of. So, no to all of those. Basically, I am talking about Bogman. So, I'm not sure if you're aware, but. Ireland is filled with, with peats and bocklands, um, which is a kind of reference for one of our episodes, if anyone is interested. Exactly. But, I was thinking of that. We'll put the link in the description. Um, but basically, it's a, it's a kind of environment that it's, it's kind of like a, a swamp, essentially. And it is a 
very slow decomposing area, very humid, very wet. And a couple of thousand years ago, there was a murder in Ireland. Scientists are still trying to figure out what exactly happened. But the this man that was murdered was thrown into the Boglands and his body is still very well preserved. And it's really, it's been really interesting because there's a lot of research going on as to what happened with these people. And their corpses are so well preserved that they're still giving us answers about what ancient people were, were doing. One of these facts is that they have really well done nails. What do you mean well done nails as in well as polished? In- yeah, yeah, they're in very well state. They're not like he was not biting his nails and they were not like overgrown or anything. They were they were trimmed in a very fashionable sense, like any Stone Age or Bronze Age man was, ancient man. Oh, of course. Uh, a standard we're all familiar with. This <laughs> is so, the upkeep of the Bronze Age man's ne- f- fingernails. I mean, were they painted? I don't think they were. I'm pretty okay, sure they were. So they didn't but at the same yet. time, it is hard to tell because their their bodies off. are turned black from yeah. uh, from the boglands. Yeah, so, that makes sense. They've been uh, in a bog. They will be, as you said, a lot of moisture. Yeah. So that is my fact that the boglands have helped us learn about the nail fashion of people from ages ago. And in case anyone is wondering how long ago this was it the using carbon dating they uh, the scientists have been able to tell that this man was living around 360 to 170 bc that's more than 2000 years ago yes yes wow so so this guy was killed and he was just thrown in this place no actual intention to preserve the body it just happened because the place what was the name of the the the, the time the investigation the Boglin was just the, the, the chemical features just allowed the preservation of the body so yeah, that yeah. we even know now that the, the people there had a uh, were really good at preserving nails or maybe we just found an exceptionally you know clean and um, very careful man or person about nails but that's wow yeah no no no, we know that it was a man we we know that it was a man it was a man yeah um but it's yeah it's so we we're actually not sure why he died like there there was a there was a wound so we know that he died because of that but there are some theories that it's actually because of a sort of ritual or it might have been a case of violence but we're not sure probably he was really annoying to his neighbors to be fair this sort of environment is relatively common in different parts of europe so there are loads of boglins in ireland scotland uh the netherlands and denmark so it these sort of things might change from place to place and time to time because these again they're really well getting preserved so there some of the bodies might be from 2000 years ago or further back in time or more recent so but it, i just find fascinating that we can learn about ancient people and their nail habits most their nail habits of course thank you very much Tomas.
Thank you, Todd, and thank you to all our listeners. If you liked the episode, you remember to share it with your friends, tell the world about it. But apart from that, this was the Science Basement Podcast. I'm Giuliano. See you in the next episode. Bye. Bye. Goodbye. The Science Basement. If you liked this episode, give it a thumbs up, rate us on the podcasting app of your choice, and don't forget to share it with your friends. This podcast was produced by The Science Basement, a science communication organization based in Helsinki, Finland. If you're interested in getting involved or being interviewed, get in touch at podcast at thesciencebasement.org.